לקוטי סיכס חלק י"ח, פרשת שלח, שיחה ג'. We've discussed often how Rashi's explanation on Torah explains the literal intention of the verses as Rashi himself attests frequently and as Rashi teaches in the very first parsha in the third chapter of Bereshis, explaining the words in Pasuk Ches in verse 8, Vayishmu, and they heard God's voice. Adam and Hava heard God's voice in the garden. There are many Agadic and Idrashic explanations, says Rashi, for this, but I have come only to teach the simple intention of the scripture, Vani loibasi ela lipshute shel mikra. And yet, alongside teaching literal intention of the verses, Rashi exposes and illuminates wondrous teachings on all areas of Torah, including the esoteric wisdom of Torah, as the Alter Rebbe teaches in Hayyem Yem, the explanation of Rashi on Torah is the Yena Shal Torah, the wine, the deepest secrets of Torah revealed. However, in order to access these wondrous teachings of Rashi and to receive the Yena Shal Torah of Torah found in Rashi's explanation, we need to study the literal intention of the verse. For in the literal intention, as Rashi explains it, the, these, these explanations are infused with the Yenu Shaltera. This is so too in our Parsha, where Rashi teaches wondrous halachic ideas and reveals the depths of the verses. So let's begin with understanding the verse and Rashi's literal interpretation. In this week's Torah portion, in Parsha Shlach, we learn of the saga of the spies whom Moshe sent to scout out the land of Canaan. Kolev and Yeshua, when returning with the other spies who frightened the nation and spoke negatively about the land of Israel and our ability to conquer the land, spoke up and said, Ach Hashem al timreidu v'atem al tiru. In Pasuk, in Perak Yudala, chapter 14, verse 9, Pasuk Tes, they said, Do not fear, do not rebel, excuse me, against God. And do not fear es am ha'aretz, the people who live on the land. Ki him, they are like our bread. Sar tzilam their protection has been removed from upon them. Hashem itanu, and Hashem is with us. Al tirum, do not fear them. Rashi quotes the words al timredu, don't rebel, to mean don't rebel against God, and then you won't fear these people. Commentaries on Rashi teach that Rashi is indicating that the words, and you won't fear, are a continuation and result of the statement, don't rebel. If you don't rebel against God, then you will not fear. Rashi's explanation is necessitated, says the Be'er Yitzchak. The commentary on Torah written by the famed Russian 19th century Pesach and Talmudist Rabbi Yitzchak Elchanan Specter, by the reorder of the words in the Pasuk. It's clear in the Pasuk that the Pasuk is expressed in one way first and then follows and expresses itself in another way second. Prefacing the words al do not rebel, is the word Bahashem, indication of against who they should not rebel. 
but when the verse then states al-tiru and do not fear, the indication who they do not should not fear only comes after. Al-tiru es am ha'oretz, don't fear the people who live in the land. And it's this that compels Rashi's explanation that vi'atem al-tiru and you won't fear is a continuation to the words and a result of the words al-timreidu, do not rebuild. What makes this explanation alone challenging is that according to this explanation, it would seem that Rashi should also quote the word Bahashem that precedes the words Altimredu, as in in God do not rebel, as well as the words that follow Ba'atem Altiru es Am Ha'oretz, and you won't fear the people who live on the land, or at the very least reference these following words with a Vagoymer, indication that the verse continues onto these words, the basis for which the commentaries are suggesting is Rashi's explanation. But Rashi does not precipitate al with the word Ba'ashem and does not follow the words Va'atem al-Tiru with Es'am Ha'oretz, which tells us that Rashi's explanation lies essentially not in the words themselves, or in the reorder of the words, but in the intention of the words al-timreidu. Looking at Rashi's explanation on the next words in the verse, ki for they are our bread, which Rashi explains as noichlam ki we will consume them like bread, too is difficult to understand. First on the basis of the question, what is Rashi's innovation with his explanation? It's understood that Lachmenu Haim said here, in regards to the nation of Edom, doesn't mean that the people are bred, but that it's an expression that means we will be victorious over them with the ease of consuming bread. On the other hand, though, if conquering the nation of Edom will be as easy as eating something, then why does bread become the chosen description of what we consume? And if it makes no difference... Then the verse could have simply stated, Neichlem, we will consume them. How does Kelechem make a difference here? In fact, Rashi should have explained Lachmenu as Neichlem Kemaachol, will consume them like a food substance, a general statement. As we often in Torah have reference to bread, and it indicates a primary food substance. As well, Rashi quotes the words, when he's going to explain these words, because they are our bread, but Rashi doesn't explain the word ki. Why then quote it? Rashi then explains the words, the next words in the verse, Hashem, excuse me, visar tzilam, Hashem will remove their protection. Rashi explains this in two ways. Rashi first says, Ksherim shabahem mesu, that those among them who were good, Ksherim, had died. Rashi particularly points out, points to Eiv, who protected them, who was good, and who had died. And so their protectors, those in whose merit the non-Jews were protected, had died. That was the first meaning of a sartzilam me'alehim, that their protection has passed from upon them. The other explanation Rashi gives is that Sartzila means that their divine protection was removed from them. Rashi bringing two explanations, of course, requires explanation. 
Why two explanations? And what does each explanation provide that the other does not? To clarify Rashi's explanation, Rashi is compelled to explain va'atem al-tiru, don't fear, as a result of al-timreidu, don't rebel, and not as a standalone statement, because we read earlier that the Maraglam argued that this nation that lives in this land is very strong, and that all the people we saw there are men of great physical stature. They further said, we were like grasshoppers in our eyes, and so were we like grasshoppers in their eyes. Now, whereas Kalev had silenced them after they had started speaking this way about the land, Kalev and Yeshua did not silence them as they carried on with these complaints. How then do they then demand of the nation, Altiru, do not be afraid of the nation that dwells on the land, without giving valid reasoning how and why not to be afraid? In fact, this question is much stronger. Moshe, after all this clamoring and this negative talk about Eretz Yisrael, when Moshe told the nation that they would not go into Eretz Yisrael and that they would suffer the consequences for their actions and die in the desert and not merit to enter the land, a group arose the following morning, the Torah tells us, with the intention of going to fight to conquer the land of Eretz Yisrael in atonement for saying the things that they had said about the land, and for saying it would be better to return to Mitzrayim, to Egypt, to which Moshe responded, warning them that if they do this, it's against God's word, and that they would then not be protected from the enemy, that the nations, the Amalekim and the Canaanim, would kill them. So there was, even according to Moshe, room for fear. How then can Yeshua and Kolev say, don't fear? As well saying, Bahashem al-Timreidu, was with the intention that they not rebel against God. Rather, they go up to Eretz Yisrael as God commanded. Why not say that then? Why weren't Yeshua and Kalev clear what Al-Timreidu actually meant? Rather than saying this in such a general way and in such general terms, don't rebel against God. These are the questions that Rashi is answering. Yeshua and Kalev said, you won't have to be afraid if you don't rebel against God. True, the people living in the land are strong, and there is what to fear. And yet, if you fulfill God's instruction, don't rebel against it, then there will be no need, even according to nature, to fear them. And therefore they said, Al-Timreidu, don't rebel. Bahashem Al-Timreidu, don't rebel against God. That's all you have to do for this strong nation that lives on the land to not be an issue of concern and fear. They say nothing about the land because it's the instruction here that's important. There will then be no need for fear and they will be able to enter the land. Accordingly, we can also understand Rashi's explanation on the words kilachmenuhem, they are our bread. Rashi says ne'echlam kilachem, will consume them like bread, not like any other foodstuff, because bread in this instance is significant. Without Rashi's explanation, commentaries would explain the verse to be telling us that kilachmenuhem means that as important as a source of sustenance that bread is, 
that's how important it is to conquer Eretz Yisrael. And as conquering Eretz Yisrael is so important, as important as bread is to men, don't fear the people because the land must be conquered. But Rashi is explaining, in explaining Al-Tiru al, al as a result of al Redu. Don't fear, because if you don't rebel against God's words, you won't need to fear, is explaining that because they will go with the strength of God in not rebelling against God, they will merit to go with with divine strength. And in that case, one cannot say that the reason for do not fear is because it's as important to conquer the land as bread is important to men. Were to be explained as mentioned that eating, excuse me, that entering the land is, and that the meaning is that it is so important, this would be challenged by an additional fact, that we only entered the land 39 years later. And so Rashi teaches, we will consume them like bread. The specific usage of bread isn't about its importance, rather about how it's eaten. It will be like eating bread. And what eating bread is like is something Rashi doesn't have to explain, as everyone who will read this Rashi in Shlach, certainly the five-year-old scholar, the Ben Chamesh Lamikra, will understand that this reference reflects that which he learned about bread back in Parshas B'Shalach, where Rashi teaches us that when the nation clamored, asked for bread, which was an appropriate ask, Kehoigen, Hashem gave it to them with love, and with a ponimeiris, with a smiling countenance. So bread, then, is a clear reference that God will give us the land in this way, with love, and with a smiling countenance, which, of course, is a clear response. Why kilachmenuheim, excuse me, why altirum is kilachmenuheim, have absolutely no fear, says Moshe, because the land will be given to you. In what manner? In a loving manner and with a smile from God. Rather, Kolev and Yeshua say, have no fear, because the land will be given, in this manner, and with a smile from God. Turning now to the next part of Rashi, and the two explanations that Rashi gave for Vesar Silam, that their protection moved away from them, we can understand the value of the second explanation Rashi gives for Vesar Tzilam and how it has value over the first explanation that the Ksherim, those who were good amongst them, who because in their merit, they were the non-Jewish nations were protected, had died. In the second explanation, Rashi says, divine protection passed Me'alehem from above them, using the word quoted in the Pasuk itself, Though Rashi doesn't quote the word me'alehim in quoting the verse to introduce this part of Rashi. Rashi only quotes Visar Tzilam and uses it only in the second explanation. This expression, sar me'alehim, that their protection passed from above them, means that something moved from where it formerly was and is now somewhere else. Sar, it moved. The challenge here, though, is that according to the first explanation, that Ksherim Shobahem Mesu, the good ones in whose merit the non-Jewish nations had protection, died, means that that protection is no longer, not that it moved elsewhere. 
So Rashi brings a second explanation, saying that their protection was divine protection, which makes usage of the word sar, it moved, understandable. As God's protection exists always, as we learn in the Pasuk, God says in Parshas Neach, after the flood, I will uphold my covenant with you, with your children and their children, and with all creatures of the earth. God has mercy on all his creations, we say in Tehillim, but Sar may allay him. He has removed this protection from these nations. In this manner, we could also say, this is so even in the first explanation that Rashi brings, that the kosher among them died, so their protection has left them. But it's a stretch, and so Rashi brings a second explanation, and this is the first. It's also Rashi's first explanation because Kolev and Yehoshua are speaking about the people of these nations. Don't fear the people who live on the land. And this first explanation addresses the people of these nations with the explanation that Sartzila means that the Ksherim of these nations have died. Therefore, they are our bread. Therefore, don't be afraid of them. Sartzila may allay him may have better served this issue, their people, or Eiv, who Rashi highlights, who were their protection, are no longer protecting them. Ultimately, this answer, however, leaves room for question, and so Rashi brings a second explanation. An amazing teaching in Rashi's explanation is that these two explanations on Sartzilam, the first, that the good among them are gone, and so these nations no longer have protection, and the second, that Hashem removed his protection from them, are reflective of a debate between the Rambam, Maimonides, and his French contemporary and primary debater on halachic opinions, the Rivad. The debate centers around the status of an animal slaughtered by a non-Jew. The Rambam determines that an animal slaughtered by a non-Jew is nevela, an animal that died of causes other than ritual slaughter, that would make the animal permissible, and one who then carries this nevela would become impure. Whether it's a kuti or a religious non-Jew, like a Christian, or one who lives in the land of Eretz Yisrael, their slaughter is considered nevela. Maimonides then says, it's my opinion that this is rabbinic law based on the rabbinic opinions on Avedah Zarah, on idol worship and their offerings. The Ravad takes issue with this opinion, saying that the category of a non-Jew in halacha is much like that of a beast in regards to issues of purity, and they cannot become impure or cause impurity. Their spiritual consideration in this context is like that of a beast. They are but like drops in a large bucket filled with water, dispersible by a gust of wind. So a halacha consideration like this is actually a complete act in futility. The commentary, the Baal Kesef Mishnah, challenges the Ravad. The issue here, he says, is, that, is the animal and its slaughter, not the non-Jew. The Raghachavagoyen explains the opinion of the Ravad, saying that the only way an animal slaughter is of some significance is if the slaughterer is of spiritual significance, halachically. Here, the Ravid says, a non-Jew's spiritual status is such that he cannot make something impure. As the Ravid explains the non-Jew, 
He cannot actually cause an animal to become nevela as he has no spiritual halachic significance. And so there is nothing to take into consideration to determine anything. Hence the animal is rendered nevela, like an animal that just died. If so, why then does the Ravid apply a distinction regarding impurity to the non-Jew? The Raghachavra's explanation seems to indicate there is no discussion here at all as the non-Jew has no halachic significance. We thus conjecture that according to all the Ravid included, the non-Jew does have certain distinctions, spiritual distinctions in halacha, in a number of issues, like the idols of a non-Jew, which a non-Jew may not take any, which a Jew may not take any pleasure from, and other such things. Therefore, the Ravid cannot categorically say that a non-Jew has no halachic spiritual status ever, like an animal has no halachic application. Therefore, he explains this in connection to impurity. A non-Jew cannot become impure because there is no discussion of spiritual substance here, nor can he, for this same reason, make something else impure, including an animal that he slaughtered. The debate be- then between the Ramban, Rambam and the Ravid is about spiritual substance or lack thereof. And this carries through in the debate regarding whether Hashkaha Pratis can be applied to the non-Jew. According to the Rambam, clearly a non-Jew is of spiritual consideration, and they too experience divine providence. According to the Ravid, they are not and do not experience Hashkaha Pratis. We can suggest that the two explanations of Rashi on Sartzilam, that they the nations that lived in the land of Eretz Yisrael were no longer protected because their protection had moved from upon them that we were previously discussing, whether it's Silam, their protection means the protection that they had among them, or whether it's a reference to divine protection, are dependent on the opinions of the Rambam and the Ravid. The first explanation Rashi gives tells us that B'nai Noyach have no spiritual substance, like the opinion of the Ravid, and therefore we can't explain their protection as God's protection of them, saying first they had, they had divine protection and now they don't, it's moved off of them, because saying that suggests that there is a real entity here, there's a spiritual, there is, they are of spiritual substance, and the proof for that is that God's protection had a connection to them and is measured against their existence as an entity. Like an actual shadow, the word sail translates as shadow that is created because there is an actual person there, and the shadow reflects the person's movements. But this opinion of the Ravid explained by the Raghachavar is there is no substance, hence no divine providence. And then we must have the first explanation of Rashi, that they, there were those who were worthy, and thus kept the nation, the entire non-Jewish nation, safe, and they died, and their protection is gone. Yet according to the second explanation, Bnei Nayach, a non-Jew, is of spiritual substance and experiences divine providence, and therefore we can say God's particular protection left them, as that spiritual connection does exist. Chassidus explains the idea further. 
the shadow we refer to that reflects man in Chassidus is the idea that man's actions below reflect a spiritual impact above, an impact that is directly reflective of man's actions. As the Baal Shem Tov explains the words in the verse in Tehillim, in Psalms 121, Kuf Chof Aleph, verse 5, Pasuk Hei, Hashem Tzilcha, the verse tells us, Hashem is your shadow. A Jew's actions below awaken a similar reaction, which changes according to man's actions. This is somewhat similar to Tzilo Yishel Amokim, God's shadow and protection for the non-Jew, as God does not deprive any creature of their needs. And one's actions awaken, says the verse, awaken me to speak, a protection that flows into this world. In other words, initiating a good action, specifically the observing of the seven Noahide laws, through this action, a non-Jew receives reward. And the opposite of that positive action brings down punishment. But this is all only according to the opinion of the Rambam, who maintains this position that a non-Jew is of spiritual substance and there is personal providence for the non-Jew. And this reflects the sail, the protection in our discussion. The Raivad's opinion is that a non-Jew's reward and punishment, as that may be in this world, is seemingly an occurrence in line with their existence as humans. That all significance of a non-Jew in his life is service of, in, in service of facilitating a Jew's existence and purpose. Just as an animal has his needs met, or suffers injury, or even the halachic consequence of his animal behavior, as we learn in Parshish Kedeshim, that if a person sins in an aberrational behavior with an animal, both the Jew and the human are put to death, even though an animal cannot sin. This came through man's behavior with the animal, and yet, while this cannot be said to be a punishment for the animal, because the animal exists for the purpose of serving man to facilitate a Jew's godliness after facilitating man's sin, instead, the animal no longer has a purpose and can no longer exist. And so the Torah says, and the animal shall be put to death. This is the same with non-Jews. All of existence is for the Jew to live in a way that reveals the divine through Torah and mitzvahs, to create a dwelling in this world for God. Unlike the mitzvahs we received, which are of essence, and therefore reward and punishment too, are of essence, the non-Jew seven Noahide laws are then completely ancillary, and therefore reward and punishment for these seven mitzvahs are natural reflections of human life. And there's no distinction in the einish, in the punishment. The only consequence that exists for non-Jews' behavior is death, not like when there is a shadow reflecting our actions above. Therein lies the difference, both in intuition and halacha, in intention, excuse me, and in halacha, between Rashi's two explanations of tzel, protection, or shadow. The first explanation, like the opinion of the Ravid, b'nei noyach are of no consequence in spiritual substance, and reward and punishment for them is just a natural chance 
occurrence. Therefore, Rashi doesn't explain Tzel as Tzilei Shel HaMokim, God's protection of them, rather as there were good people among them who were their protectors. On the other hand, Rashi's second explanation is like the opinion of the Rambam, that a non-Jew is of spiritual consequence and there is a measure of divine providence. Even while the Rambam maintains that the purpose of a non-Jew, including his seven obligations, is to facilitate a Jew's life and purpose, once commanded, and particularly as these mitzvahs were made part of Torah by God and instructed by Moshe, we must say that their observance affects a similar measure of response from above. Accordingly, we can now better understand the resolution of the other questions that arise on the, com- on the continuation of the verse and on Rashi's given explanation. What indeed was the purpose in Kolev and Yeshua adding this information about the status of the non-Jewish nations who inhabited the land, that Sartzila Me'alehim, their protection had moved off of them. The words they spoke in the verse preceding this one, in Posukches in verse 8, saying, If Hashem is pleased with us, He will bring us to the land, He will give her to us, this land that flows with milk and honey. These were necessary, important, and encouraging words. As well saying, don't rebel against God's words, don't fear the people of the land. And particularly as Rashi explains this verse, don't rebel against God's instructions, and you will not need to fear, for you will go with God's strength, and will have absolutely no reason to fear the people of the land. For Lachmenu Haim, Hashem will give them over into our hands, Bederachiba, with love, and upon him, Meirais, a smiling appearance or a smiling countenance. This is all important. It tells the nation of Israel how to move forward. But who needs to know what the situation is with the Knanim, the non-Jews who dwell in Eretz Yisrael? Why was it necessary to know that the protection of the non-Jews is gone and that their shadow response from God is gone from above them? Also, saying that we will consume them is enough indication of what's to come, that they will be conquered and not with might, so why the need for this information of the Sartzila Me'alehem, that their protection has gone from upon them? Also, as Yeshua and Kalev conclude their statement and the verse, they repeat, Al-Tirum, don't fear, don't fear them. Why repeat this? And more importantly, they were just told, all you have to do is not rebel against God's instruction and you need not fear. So why did they can then conclude by adding the Hashem Itanu, Hashem is with us? Whatever is the reason for now adding this? The reason for this conclusion on their part is that there were actually three categories among those conquered in Eretz Yisrael. Some died, they died fighting. Some were immediately banished from the land. They left the land voluntarily. They didn't fight, they fled, and some left when the Jewish nation began their proper lives in Eretz Yisrael, filling the land with the nation of Israel. These non-Jews had, in the interim, served their victors, so there was peace, and they were the Lachmenu, but they served, um, they were in service of the Jews who had conquered their cities. 
So in continuation of what we were saying earlier, even according to Rashi's second explanation, that the non-Jews have divine protection, as the Rambam determines, that there is an element of divine providence for the non-Jew, it's nevertheless understood that it's completely unlike the providence of a Jew, as we mentioned regarding the mitzvah of a Jew versus the seven mitzvahs of the non-Jew. After refuting the statement made by the other spies that the nation is unconquerable, Yeshua and Kolev were highlighting the point that if they did not rebel against God's word, there would be absolutely no reason to fear the people dwelling in the land at all, no matter their situation. They then continued with, and more than that, their protection has left them. Not just as Rashi's first, Rashi first explains this, their internal source of protection was gone. And beyond that, the second explanation, that Hashem's protection was gone from them, but Hashem Itanu, Hashem is with us. Hashem Itanu tells the nation that beyond the sale, the protection of God for the Jewish nation that completely encircles us in a makiftika way, Hashem is with us, united, unified with us. In other words, for the non-Jew, divine providence is like a sail. It hovers, but for a Jew, God is with us as one with us, which of course not only allows us not to fear the nation living in the land, for Hashem will give it to us, and they are kilachmenu, it will be given with love, but in fact they are as though they have ceased to exist completely, because that sail, that hovering divine providence and protection, is gone. The three classes of people who were conquered in the land, those who died, those who immediately left the land, and those who served the Jewish nation until they too left, reflect the three conditions that Yeshua sent to the people living in the land before they were conquered, as well as the instructions that were given to the Jewish nation who were going to conquer the land before entering and conquering Eretz Yisrael. The instruction, no soul shall remain alive. In other words, the condition, stay and fight. Two, if the response to the entry into a city is with peace, allow the people of the city to remain and to become as, as servants to the nation of Israel. The condition, make peace and stay as servants in Eretz Yisrael. And three, the Girgashim left for Africa. In other words, leave on your own accord. That was the condition. As we learn in the Talmud Yerushalmi, in fact, ultimately, the Girgashim returned with a complaint that their land had been taken from them. In the time of Alexander of Macedon and Gvia ben Psisa argued with them, telling them why, according to Torah, they were not entitled to their land, and ultimately they left, and they left their lands and their fields as they were, full of produce, and their vineyards as they were, full of vines, of full of vines, full of grapes.